When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Hey. This is Duray, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, we have a double interview episode because we took some time to celebrate Easter with our families. First up, Kaya, our very own Kaya, discusses Judas and the Black Messiah with its director and co-writer, Shaka King. And then Janetta Elzey gives us updates on what's happening with the protests. And then I sit down with Dorothy A. Brown, Professor Brown, to discuss racism in the world of the American tax law. I learned so much that I didn't know. The advice for this week is to remember to pat yourself on the back. Give yourself credit. Look in the mirror and tell that person, job well done. Is that we don't do that enough. And that has to be a part of how we think about the way we love ourselves and the way that we talk to ourselves and the way that we treat ourselves. It sets us up to do the same in the world. Here we go. Now, our very own Kaya sat down last week with Shaka King, who is a director and co-writer of the award-winning new film, Judas and the Black Messiah, which explores the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party and Chairman Fred Hampton. Here's a discussion on how that film came to be and why it was made outside of how Hollywood feels comfortable exploring Black stories. Let's go. Hello, Pod Save the People family. It's me, Kaya Henderson, and I'm excited to come to you today with an amazing interview, what I know is going to be an amazing interview, um, with maybe the hottest director in Hollywood right now, at least by my standards, Shaka King, who directed the seminal movie that you are watching right now, Judas and the Black Messiah. Welcome, Shaka. Thanks for having me. We're excited to have you. Um, This has been a story that a lot of people didn't know about, or if they knew about it, they didn't know all of the nuances that this film um, brought to life. And so I'm excited that our listeners get to hear about how you thought about this movie and all it is. So um, I'm going to start by asking you, what inspired you to tell this particular story and this story in this way? The idea was brought to me by the Lucas Brothers, who were friends of mine, a comedy duo out of Newark. They came to me and they said, we want to make a movie about Fred Hampton and William O'Neill that we envisioned as the departed set inside the world of Colin Telpro. You know, I knew a significant amount, a decent amount about, you know, how Fred Hampton has been assassinated, um, but I really knew nothing about the way he lived. You know, I knew a bit about the Panthers' politics and ideas, and I thought that they could never be more relevant. You know, things that they were fighting against late 60s and early 70s, those, those things still exist. Those topics are evergreen. So I was excited to, you know, have the potential to talk about those things and introduce their ideas. Um, and what the Lucas Brothers had provided was a vessel that was essentially, you know, a popcorn movie, piece of entertainment. Um, and so I thought it was a brilliant way to get these profound ideas into you know, piece of entertainment. And, and that's why I jumped at it. And I mean, one of one of our listeners shared with me that sometimes black movies aren't made for black people. But she said this movie felt like it was made for us. And she talked about a lot of the different nuances that were present. This wasn't just a straight kind of biopic. This was more than that. And so who was your intended audience and what do you want them to take away from this film? You know, the audience started with black folks. 
first and foremost, to the point where I think in, in some of the early cuts, I left out a significant amount of context just in terms of contextualizing who the Black Panthers were and what they were fighting against. Because for a Black audience, I felt like everyone would know that already. But then I, I had to be reminded that, you know, this history hasn't really been taught to a really large segment of the population, including Black folks. A lot of people like myself, you know, heard the name Fred Hampton growing up. A lot of us didn't really know uh, much about him. So I had to broaden the audience in some ways, you know, not just for the movie to be successful, but also for the politics to kind of come across in, you know, a major way. The person we spoke with, what they picked up on, I think, was accurate, you know, just in terms of not really being concerned with presenting, quote-unquote, both sides of the story. I think it was very clear that the filmmakers were aligned uh, with the Panthers, and so I wouldn't go as far as sort of calling it a reverse kind of Cowboys and Indians movie, mm -hmm. like the classic movies they used to make where, you know, the audience, like, roots for the Cowboys and the Indians, as they referred to them then, were the bad guys. I wouldn't go, would go that far, but we did remain fairly accurate in terms of the portrayal of what the FBI and the Chicago Police Department did as a result of telling the truth. The perspective is definitely pro-Panther and, and I think aligned with uh, many of our Black audience members. That's one of the things that was so fascinating to me about watching this film. Like, there are good guys and there are bad guys. And you were able to accurately and truthfully portray what was happening. At the same time, I think you were able to really bring to life the real human aspect. There were moments of intimacy and tenderness, even amongst these people who many people just believe were like gun-toting revolutionaries, right? No, you saw love and you saw pain and you saw passion. Even William O'Neill I mean, you humanized him in a way that we got to understand his struggle a little bit. How do you think about doing that in a film? Well, I mean, for me as a filmmaker, it just starts with my taste. I always want to present fully realized three-dimensional, four-dimensional characters just because I think it makes for better filmmaking. It makes for, you know, more interesting and entertaining, compelling film. Um, but in the case of this film, especially, you know, when you're talking about icons and the Black Panthers, and icons are two-dimensional. Your job, my job as a, as a filmmaker, is to give those characters dimension. Uh, and in the case of the Panthers, to really, you do so because you want to highlight the sacrifices that they made as people, because they were people, you know, they, they're people who fell in love, they're people who planned to have a family, and, you know, their dream was cut short, tragically, by the actions of the FBI and Chicago Police Department and State Attorney's Office, so... That's why you humanize. That's why you, you know, give complexity to characters. And, and in terms of William O'Neill, and I think even Roy Mitchell, you want to contextualize their behavior. You want to give them complexity so that the audience can, in some ways, connect to them and ideally question how they move in those kinds of ways. You know, do they have any William O'Neill in them? Do they have any Roy Mitchell in, in them or in their family? Yeah, I mean, I'm a sucker for love. I think black love is revolutionary. And there were so many tender moments between the two of them, from playing footsie in bed to her reception of him, like just the touch when he came out of prison. Like, it was, oh my gosh, I thought it was amazing. Um, How do you think about casting for these roles? You know, when, when we were writing the script, I saw Daniel, I saw Lakeith, I saw Dominique, I saw Jesse. So they were all, in my mind, cast. You knew them as you all were putting together the script? Yeah, as I was writing the script, I, I saw them in the leads, those four specifically. 
Huh. Um, and then the other actors, you know, they came later. Um, but those four, I, I had one from the very beginning. And was it hard to get them? Um, no, I mean, I had a relationship with Keith, so that was pretty easy. Daniel Ryan had a relationship with, so that was, you know, fairly effortless. And it turned out that Dominique joined my agency briefly, the agency on that I represented that she joined briefly, and we connected via the agency. It was crazy. Like, I literally, I was writing the role for her, and I got an email from one of my, my reps saying that she joined and she asked if I had a desire to meet with her. And I was like, I definitely do. I'm literally writing something for her right now. The only person who was hard to get a hold of was Jesse because we didn't have a, I didn't have a personal relationship with him. I didn't know anyone that had a personal relationship with him until we were going through his reps who, you know, just weren't getting him the script as far as I know. And so a few weeks before we really started shooting, I ended up getting uh, his number from uh, someone I was working with on set and working on another movie and I called him, cold called him and he was the last one to come on board once he read the script. Um, so the universe just conspired to make it happen. Exactly. I love it. Exactly. Um, I, one of the things that I heard is that for a lot of surviving Black Panthers, this film brings up incredibly traumatic memories. And I've heard that you've paid careful attention to that particular impact. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. You know, something that was on my mind pretty early in the post process and had been in dialogue with Blair Anderson, who was the survivor of the assassination and was wounded during the assassination. And, um, he was someone who was just very honest about the challenges that he expected to experience watching the movie, um, and that he had a feeling that a lot of his comrades, you know, those who were present during the assassination, and even those who just were affected by it in terms of fearing for their lives or having concern for their comrades, he really thought it was important to put together supported screenings for any former chapter member. I think. You know, whether in Illinois, outside of Illinois, who had an interest in watching the movie and wanted to speak with, you know, a trained professional about their experience watching it, whatever. So it was something that we took a while to strategize, but all the producing partners were on board. The studio was on board. Participant, who was one of our producers, really led the charge. And some, you know, former Panthers have chosen to take part um, in, in some of those therapy sessions and some have not. You know, but we just wanted to offer up the, the option just because, you know, we knew that this was a movie that you were going to be seeing, seeing the trailer, you know, during sporting events. And we knew people would be triggered by it. So, I mean, really, it wasn't so much that we didn't want people to be triggered. We knew they would inevitably. Um, but we wanted to do whatever we could to mitigate that. All the credit I always give to Blair Anderson for that because it was his idea. You know, it was really all his. It just was something that when he proposed it, I knew this would happen. I just didn't know what to do. Uh-huh. He fortunately was like, well, this is my experience. This is what I would like. Yeah. And if I would like it, then maybe other people would like it. You know? Well, really, all the credit goes. Yeah. Well, hats off to Blair, for sure, um, especially for normalizing, you know, therapy and mental health work in our community, but also, you know, for you, uh, this is what happens when we are in dialogue with our community, right? Our community tells us what we want and we co-create solutions together. And so I think that is beautiful. Um, <clears throat> we just wrapped up Women's History Month and in my research for this 
interview, I learned that there were a number of black women who were crucial to making this film happen. Um, I think many of us have heard about the challenges that black filmmakers have in getting their films made, um, but I understand that there were women like Nigel Koikendoyle at Warner Brothers, uh, Zinzi Evans and others. Can you talk about the role that black women played in helping you get this film made? Naja obviously was a big part of the reason why the film ended up uh, with Warner Brothers. She'd been trying to make uh, a feature about the Black Panthers, I think, for about 10 years since she'd been there. Can you tell our, our audience who she is? The vice president uh, at Warner Brothers in development. You know, she's one of the few Black you know executives with that much power at a studio in Hollywood. No surprise to me that as many studios passed, Warner Brothers was the one that didn't. I think it definitely helped that she was present there and had power there. You know, there was another black woman who was in development who worked with NYSA, uh, Sheila Walcott, who was also instrumental in terms of giving notes. You know, Makaya Green, she gave, you know, tremendous notes. Lindsay Evans uh, was crucial, I mean, especially through the post process in terms of just making sure, you know, women were properly represented in the film. But ultimately, you know, the people I really, you know, when I think about this, like Dominique Fishback and Dominique Bowen, you know, I really always take my hat, my hat off to them. Uh, you know, who starred in the movie and really played a tremendous role in shaping their characters and giving their characters just the strength and the depth that you see in the, in the picture. So this film is getting all kinds of positive press and critical acclaim and awards. And so you're having a moment. Um, how does it feel? <laughs> it's, it's great. You know, it's strange. I'm, I'm in my house. So it's all uh, virtual. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's really nice. You know, I'm excited to, you know, see the movie with people one well, Sunday, um, you know, seeing the strangers. Oh, yeah. Cause no, none of us, none of us yeah. have been in a theater. Yeah. So you missed the whole, like hearing people laugh and hearing people gasp and you missed the experience. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. I've seen it with friends. Uh, I went to one screening with some college friends. We run it out of the theater, but I haven't seen it with strangers yet, so oh. uh, I'm looking forward to that. But no, it's great, and it's really exciting, because obviously the, the story is getting out there to more people, and, you know, in terms of my career, I hope it makes the next one easier to get made. It feels like it, it has, so. Um, that's exciting, and that's my that's my next question. What's next for you? I got a movie I'm, um, between, uh, you know, press commitments and taking meetings, I'm slowly developing that I'm excited about. I don't know enough yet to talk about it in a really educated way, uh-huh. but it's ambitious. I'll say that. It's definitely ambitious. Okay, that's exciting. If, you know, some studio just wrote you a big old check and said, you can do your dream project, anything you want to do, um, what might that look like? For me, this hopefully this next thing is that. Judas was that, you know, for me. So everything I do is that. Anything I see through to the end is something that feels like a dream project to me, honestly. Yep. We don't have to have one dream. We don't have to be limited in that way. I hear that. Um, tell us, tell us, I mean, our, the Pod Save the People listeners, are, we're a family. Um, we are in each other's business. Tell us something about Shaka King that we don't already know about you. You know what? I love swimming. I really love to swim. You love swimming. I just came from swimming. It just occurred to me. Yeah, I love swimming. I love swimming. Um, That is something that most people don't know. How often? I'm not very good at it. I'm not very good at it, but I love it. Yeah. And where'd your swimming habit come from? I used to play basketball. I hurt my hip. 
so I couldn't play anymore and I needed you know, some kind of exercise to do it. I hated jogging. I hated calisthenics. I hated lifting weights, but I love swimming. Okay. And I, and I, you know, I discovered that I was at a, I was like at a writer's camp or colony or something and they had a pool and I started swimming and I was like, Oh, I like this. So I've been doing it for a few years and I, I love it. I love it. Cause you know, people don't think that black people swim, but, um, I'm excited about that. Yeah. It's a, it's a total lie. <laughs> It's a lie. I mean, so many of us come from islands and live all over and are coastal. Like, it doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> like, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, um, I'm going to end our interview with one question, and that is, what gives you hope in these crazy times? People are alive. Life still continues, and there's only been crazy times. One thing I think people forget is that, like, this is the best it's ever been. <laughs> as bad as it is. Yeah. This is the best yeah. it's ever been. Yeah. I guess that is true, right? It, like, it's all about perspective. And, yeah. yeah, people are still living and growing and dreaming and swimming and doing what they do, making movies. And hopefully we will be celebrating you soon as the Oscars are coming around. And, and hopefully we'll all be able to be in movie theaters soon so that we can see this the way it was meant to be seen. Um, I just want to say thank you, Shaka, for sharing with the pod family a little bit about Judas and the Black Messiah. Family, if you haven't seen it, stop what you're doing and stream it right now. It's such an important story, but it's also an incredible piece of art. And uh, we want to support this film and films just like it. So thank you again, Shaka, for coming on. Thank you, Kai. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you 
help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. And now I check in with Netta. She gives us an update on what's going on with the protests. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's me, Netta. Happy April. Spring is my favorite. It's honestly the best time of year. I always feel rejuvenated every April. April is my true new year as it's my birthday month, but also it's the birthday month of so many of my favorite people. It's incredible how many Aries I have in my life. So I just got to give everyone who's already had a birthday a shout out. So hey, Justin, and hey to my best friend of now 18 years, Taylor. I cannot take that so many of us are turning 32, 33, 34, I'm seeing folks I dreamed a future with live out those exact dreams, and it's so wild. A lot of folks I've talked to recently are like, you sound happy, and truly, I am. Winter is always so hard because of grieving my mother, and then add on COVID and a pandemic, like a lot of people I've talked to, it got to be a slippery slope for us for a while. I'm also just happy about celebrating my friends' birthdays. So April really feels like one big party, no matter the environment. (laughs) And another random fact is a great friend of mine actually shared a birthday that is the exact same day, and we were born on Easter Sunday in 1989, way back in the day. (laughs) Um, So I also hope that you all have been well. It's been a while since we talked, right? So let's get into the news. Major League Baseball's All-Star Game will not be in Atlanta this year after Georgia Governor Brian Kemp passed a law that is clearly aimed at voter suppression. In the year 2021, this year, this Republican governor signed off on a bill that forces voters to use ballot boxes rather than being able to mail in absentee ballots. The Major League Baseball Players Alliance said in a statement that the law disproportionately disenfranchises the black community, but also paves the way for other states to pass similarly harmful laws based on widespread falsehoods and disinformation. Meanwhile, Kemp said Major League Baseball caved to the cancel culture and a bunch of liberal lies. Amidst all this foolishness, y'all, I wanna draw your attention to this Governor Kemp naming Stacey Abrams by name in his letter and never once naming the actual Major League Baseball commissioner. So, the good sis Stacey Abrams is powerful enough to convince an old institution like the Major League Baseball to move a major event like the All-Star Game, but somehow is not powerful enough to have all of her votes counted fairly and securing the position of governor that you stole from her? Oh, okay. That makes sense. In Chicago, 13-year-old Adam Toledo is dead. Chicago police fatally shot him after chasing him into an alley. Without the body cam footage, this would be yet another execution by police. 
Adam's mother, Elizabeth, said her son had been missing for days and it took over a year. Let's remind ourselves. It took over a year for the Chicago police to release the dash cam footage that showed an officer fatally shooting 17-year-old Laquan McDonald 16 times. And that was only after journalists and activists worked extremely hard to get the footage actually released. Protesters are demanding to see the video. And I wish I could say that I was surprised. Am I surprised by how young Adam was? No. Tamir Rice's death tells me not to be. Am I surprised by the details of what actually went down seem to be unclear? Absolutely not. Will I be surprised if the officer who killed Adam doesn't even see a charge, a courtroom, or a conviction? Nope. Well, y'all, the incarcerated folks in the St. Louis Justice Center are not here for it. Around 60 incarcerated people left their cells to protest in humane conditions and a serious backlog of cases that is keeping many of them behind bars much longer than they actually need to be. At one point, they held a sign that said, help us, and chanted, we want court dates. Did they break windows? Yes. Did they start a fire a few? Yes, but that's not the point. You already know we're for lives over broken windows. These incarcerated folks continue to be at risk during the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. This country will literally let lives waste away behind bars while paying them pennies an hour, which is insulting and ridiculous. This is the third time things have popped off since December. In St. Louis, it's truly on the, the cusp of change and things could either go towards the future and progress or we can regress even more. I truly hope the work that all of us are truly doing benefits us in some way. I would love to see change at home. I would love to see folks actually have and benefit from a just system. Ooh, that's just been so heavy on my heart because while last night, so many of us were enjoying the versus battle with the Isley Brothers and Earth, Wind & Fire, there were folks at the Justice Center literally just fighting and asking for humane treatment. That's the world we live in. By the time we talk next week, I'll have both of my vaccination shots. I've been thinking about it and fully processing what a difference a year truly has made in my life, in my values, what things I find to be important, and just how truly blessed I am to have had my family come through this experience as healthy as we possibly could have been. God is good all the time, and I'm grateful and truly in awe. My village has blessed me 10 times over this year, and I'm so happy to be alive. Until next week, I'll talk to y'all later. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? 
It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a Remax agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. Remax is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study, each office independently owned and operated. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. So Dorothy Brown is a professor whose work focuses on the racial implications of the federal tax code and federal tax policy. I learned a ton that I had no clue about when we spoke and in her book, The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. Now, the tax code was opaque to me. I certainly had a lot of questions, and I think that you will come out of this learning way more than you knew before. Here we go. Professor Brown, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you so much for having me. One of the reasons that I'm excited to talk to you is that you are an expert on something that I didn't even know was a thing. So (laughs) I'm like, I'm here to learn. But can you talk about how you became obsessed with taxes or like how taxes? I know, you know, not to give away the whole book. And we're here to talk about the book, The Whiteness of Wealth. But in the very, very beginning, you talk about sort of trying to do something that actually wasn't all about race. And then you were like, well, the taxes actually are about race. But what was the what was the journey to even like, I don't know, studying taxes? Like, what does that look like? Yes, it looks like growing up in the South Bronx and dealing with racism every day and deciding I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. And I decided I wanted to pick an area of law that had absolutely nothing to do with race. I lived racism. I didn't want to have to work in racism as well. So I majored in accounting in college just in case the law thing didn't work out. And I took a tax accounting course and I loved it. And I said, that's it. I want to be a tax lawyer because the only color that matters is green. Well, fast forward (laughs) a decade or so and I'm doing my parents' taxes. I'm doing my taxes. Something's not making sense, but I have a master's degree in tax law, so I actually know what I'm doing. But something didn't add up with their return and my return. I made myself the same income as my parents combined, and I should have been paying a whole lot more in taxes than they were, but I wasn't. And I couldn't figure it out. And every April 15th, I ran into the same brick wall. Why? I don't know. Well, I became an academic, and one of the luxuries of being an academic is you actually have some time to not think about your clients' issues, but whatever it is you want to think about. And I picked up an article that I'd been saving for this particular day, and it was called Toward Developing a Black Legal Scholarship. And it was written by a mentor of mine, Jerome Culp, who um, is now deceased, but he was on the faculty at Duke. And towards the end of the article where he's making the case that all black law professors should write about systemic racism in the area of law they teach. I'm not connecting it with tax. I'm thinking, oh, he can't be talking about tax. Towards the end of the article, it says, how do you know there isn't a race and tax problem if you don't look? 
And I went, what? <laughs> there could be a race and tax problem? So I picked up the phone, called him. I said, Jerome, I'm going to do something. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something. Unfortunately, the first thing I found was the IRS doesn't collect statistics by race. That's in the book, and I like don't know what that means. You, are, do you mean that like the IRS doesn't know what percentage of people filing taxes are black or white? Is that what you mean? That and everything. Wow. Yes. All these other government agencies that have racial data that's public, right, so we know all these statistics, we know nothing about race and tax. So when I make this promise to Jerome, I'm so clueless, I don't even know the IRS doesn't publish or collect statistics by race. So I became, because I was forced to, a detective of sorts, looking at all literature that I could find that talked about race in a way that I could make an analogy to the tax code. And the first thing I came upon was a U.S. Commission on Civil Rights report that had the following line in it. Black wives contribute 40% to household income and white wives contribute 29%. Now, anyone listening is going to say, yeah, and? But to me, it was gold because it led me on the path to figuring out why my parents paid so much in taxes. Let's back up and about the data. Is that an active choice? Was there a decision not to collect race data or did that just happen? Like how, like what's the is somebody fighting against the collection of race data? You see, that's a great question. And there's a GW law professor, Jeremy Barra friend, who wrote a piece about the IRS and their colorblind approach. You, you don't have a smoking gun that answers it clearly, but here's what you know. There was an opportunity for the IRS to publish these statistics because there have been at least one or two studies done by other people with IRS data that talks about race. But what we do know is the IRS data includes gender and age, So if you can publish statistics based on gender or age, you could do it on race. So they have the data. They have access to the data. Or or let's put it this way. They could do it if they wanted to. And under what presidency did they decide not to? What's the time frame here? All of them. Oh, Oh, they could still do it. It's not like it's it's sunsetted on when they could do it. No, no, no. They could still do it. Really? In fact... President Biden's first executive order that talked about racial equity has the disaggregation of data by race, among other categories, included in it. And there is a data working group that's supposed to be looking into this. Ah, well, that is here we go. Okay, so so, okay, now take us to this issue about that you're paying the same as your parents. Yes. And can you explain to us why that is? Why doesn't that make sense for those of us who know nothing about taxes? Yes, yes, yes. So let's say I'm making a hundred thousand okay. dollars, and my mother makes fifty thousand, and my father makes fifty thousand. The progressive tax system increases the amount of taxes you pay as your income increases. Yes. So somebody making a hundred thousand dollars pays higher taxes than someone making fifty thousand. Yes. That's just, right, how the progressive tax system is supposed to work. But how the joint return worked is it kind of treated my parents like they were making $100,000. Got it. 
So their taxes went up because they were married to each other. If they didn't get married and lived in sin, they would have paid less taxes. Because they would have paid taxes as two people making 50000 Yes. not as one person making 100000 Yes. So see, you know more about taxes than you thought. Why is it bad that they're counted as one person, though? Like, they're a couple. Isn't that the whole point of it? That, like, for the purposes of the law, that, like, they as one unit made 100000 and then you as one unit made 100000 What's wrong with that? What's wrong with it is if I am married and I am the sole wage earner, a $100,000 couple with one single wage earner and a stay-at-home spouse pays the exact same taxes as my parents would. However, that couple, which is more likely to be white, actually gets a tax cut from what they would have paid had they remained single and they were taxed, the wage earner was taxed at $100,000 of income. Oh, so you're saying that like, there's no incentive to be married, is what you're saying? There's no incentive to be married if you're two equal wage earners. There is a huge incentive to be married if you're a single wage earner. And race comes into play with who is more likely to be in a single wage earner couple and who is more likely to be in an equal wage earner couple. Wait, and when you say single wage earner, you're saying like, let me repeat it back to you. You're saying that like, if we both make 50000 we would do better off with taxes being not married. Correct. That's what you're saying, yes? Yes. But if I make 100000 and you make 50000 being married's fine. Like the, we aren't going to get dinged for tax. If you make 100000 and I make zero mm-hmm. and we are a married couple, we're getting a tax cut. Got it. Okay, okay, okay. And... When the joint return, and this is because of the joint return that came into being in 1948, most married couples, like 80% plus white married couples, were in single wage earner households. That wasn't true even in 1948 for black married couples. Most black married couples or lots of black married couples were in these co-equal wage earners. And they did not get a tax cut. Got it. So keep going. So what, um, so what do we do about that? Like, what's the fix? Oh, the fix is easy. We go back to single individual filing the way it was back in the beginning of the progressive tax system in 1913. Canada has had a, an individual filing for like 100 years. But what would, the, what would your opponent say? Like, what's the benefit of a joint, of joint filing? Oh, it gives white people tax cuts. They would never say that. <laughs> and why does it give white people tax cuts? Like, <laughs> explain, explain how this is race, how, how race factors into this. Yes, because of how white Americans do marriage versus how black Americans do marriage. White Americans are more likely to be in single wage earner households with stay-at-home spouses. Black married couples are more likely to be in dual equal earning households, like my parents. It takes two. You know, in the book, I say two does not equal one, right? It takes two black married people working full time to equal one single wage earner white worker. That's fascinating. This is something that I literally would have never, ever even considered. Oh, I, and as you heard earlier, I kind of fell into it. Now, what about housing? Is there a relationship between racial disparities or racial outcomes and housing and taxes or, or is that not a big factor? Oh, it's a big deal. 
Tax subsidies for homeownership. Let's just start with the general concept. There are tax subsidies for homeownership. Well, we know most white Americans are homeowners and most black Americans are renters. So right off the bat, when you're subsidizing homeownership, you're benefiting white Americans more than black Americans. Okay, that's the big picture. But it gets worse. Let's compare white homeowners to black homeowners. You would think tax subsidies work the same, and you would be wrong. Here are two tax rules. When you sell your home at a gain, you can get up to half a million dollars gain tax-free. So if I buy my house for 200000 and I'm married, and I sell it for 700000 I have a gain of 500000 and the tax law says all of that is tax-free. Really? <laughs> really. <laughs> wow. If you're single, it's $250,000. If you're married, it's half a million. Wow. <laughs> well, what happens when you sell your home at a loss? No tax break for you. Okay, let's look at the home ownership market. Well, here's what we know. The best and biggest appreciation is in the all-white, homogeneous neighborhoods that very few black Americans live in. Black Americans who are homeowners live in racially diverse or all-black neighborhoods. Racially diverse and all-black neighborhoods do not appreciate to the extent that predominantly white neighborhoods do. So that means white homeowners are more likely to get a lot more tax-free gain than black homeowners. And you say, yeah, Dorothy, but you know, at least black people are getting some gain, tax-free. Yeah, but black homeowners are also more likely to sell for a loss that is non-tax deductible. So these innocuous rules, gain tax-free, loss, no deduction, makes total sense, except with the racism baked into the homeownership market, what we see, white homeowners win, black homeowners lose. That is fascinating. What do we, what's the fix? Well, I say the fix is to get the federal government out of supporting a racist homeownership market, which means no tax subsidies for homeownership. Take them away. Bye. You sell your house at a gain, you pay tax. Bye. And what, um, when you were doing this, what, was there anything that shocked you the most that you were like, wow, I just didn't even know, like didn't, hadn't thought about it, didn't know. What shocked me when in writing the book was the great unequalizer chapter on college and who pays and how they pay and the differences on race. But what shocked me overall was it didn't matter what code section I studied. There was a racially disparate impact and the most telling revelation of all was when white Americans and black Americans engage in the same activity, tax policy supports how white Americans do it and disadvantage how black Americans do it time after time after time. The relentlessness of the white supremacy got to me. That makes sense. I was nervous about reading this book because I was like, I don't really know anything about taxes. 
Um, but you do such a good job of like explaining it in a way that's like, okay. And the historical, like the way you talk about the order with which the laws came into place and da da da. Are there black people at the table writing these laws? You know, because I kept you you reference all these like this act of this and this tax reform thing of that. Like, are the yous in the room when these are happening? Like how how do we change that? Like how do we make sure that it's not just, you know, it's not people like you putting on a book after all this bad stuff has been encoded for a generation. Right. Are there the right people in, like, how do we get the right people in the room? Because clearly it looks like this didn't happen. <laughs> that's right. And I, that's such a great question. And part of my concern with the Biden administration is you've got this executive order and I'm not convinced the right people are in the room even to implement it. Got it, got it. So you need, right, you need people who understand what race and tax even looks like. And I am not seeing that particular skill set so that we have the president and his team talking about tax reform, like as we're speaking, and no one's talking about race. And I'm, I'm like raising my hand. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. You cannot divorce tax from race. And it's been done right forever. And I have been, I've spent 25 years doing this research. Here's this executive order. Do you mean it? If you mean it, then we have to make sure all of these conversations occur. You cannot have tax reform, in my opinion, without some kind of racial impact analysis, period. That makes sense. Can you also talk about, there's a part in the book where you talk about why college debt is more prevalent amongst black families. What is that? How, why is that? Yes, so part of it is 60% of black college students who start college do not finish. That was the statistic that made me close my laptop and leave my home and go out for a couple of hours and stare at the ocean because I didn't think I could finish the book. That statistic depressed me more than anything. Well, if you have 60% people dropping out, they've got student loan debt but they don't have a degree that's going to enable them to pay it off. So you've got more black students who drop out. You also have even students of wealthy black parents having higher debt than their white peers. Why? Because even wealthy black Americans don't hold their wealth the same way wealthy white Americans do. A lot of their wealth is tied up in their homes which, as I've talked about earlier, don't produce the returns white homes do. And second, liquid assets like stock, you see far fewer black Americans owning stock the same way their white peers do, even wealthy black Americans. So black parents are not able to protect their children the way white wealthy parents are. Got it, got it. Is loan forgiveness a part of this? Loan forgiveness is the solution to this. <laughs> okay. It's part of the conversation. And one of the things I think is missing from this conversation is how race makes it different for black students than white students. So you have all this back and forth. Do we cancel 10,000? Do we cancel 50,000? Do we cancel all? Do we cancel none? And no one's talking about the racial differences in college students, even if we talked about college graduates. Research shows that black college graduates are more likely to send money home to their parents or relatives 
or siblings. But white college graduates are more likely to get money from their parents or grandparents. Interesting. Interesting. So you think a black Harvard college graduate has got it made. No. In fact, the odds are that student or that graduate is sending money to their relatives because Jim Crow systemic racism has left them out and no one wants to see a relative evicted or, you know, other financial distress. So you're going to send money. Well, that money's not deductible. That's not a tax break. So you are depleting your reserves in a way that your, let's say, white cubicle mate doesn't. White, you may have the exact same income, but you're living very different lives. Your white cubicle mate is getting gifts and inheritances from his parents and grandparents that enable him to buy a house or maybe grandma died and left him the house. They paid off his college loans. They are currently paying for his children's K-12 through private school education. It's a completely different world for black college graduates. One of the things I want to ask you, too, is something that I've been super curious about and just didn't know who to talk to. And then there was Professor Brown. Um, (laughs) It's retirement accounts. Yes. So I know literally nothing. I just remember. So I used to work in Minneapolis public schools and I um, like we all had to sign up for a retirement account like that. We just had to. It was like we got put in a retirement thing. And uh, that's like the that was my entrance to understanding retirement. But like I don't and I know how to because I used to lead human capital work. Yeah, I know all about the processing of it. Like I know the logistics of it. And I know mm-hmm. the government retire. Like I know the way we do it for government employees because because yes. I, I had to do that. But I don't know the landscape outside of government employees. Like mm-hmm. I don't know the larger landscape. I don't know what the trends are. I, I believe that my gut is telling me that like either black people don't have a lot of retirement accounts or we have, or a lot of us have retirement accounts, but don't have a lot of money in it. Like, I don't know. Like I could, I could see a lot of things. So what, can you tell me the truth? That that is what I want. And it sounds like your gut is very close to the truth. So we see because of occupational segregation, black Americans working in jobs that are not associated with retirement accounts. So you have a higher percentage of black Americans working for employers that don't offer retirement accounts. Now, what's so good about retirement accounts? What's so great about retirement accounts is this is money set aside for your retirement that you are not taxed on today. You don't get taxed on it until you withdraw it, presumably when you retire and you're in a lower tax bracket. So employer-provided retirement accounts are wonderful if you can get it, right? So what, let's talk about the black and white employee for the employer that offers a retirement account. We see black employees are less likely to participate. We see black employees have smaller balances. We see black employees are more likely to make an early withdrawal from their retirement account and pay a tax penalty. And we could imagine why. I already talked about our extended family members that draw from middle-class black Americans. Research shows that. So retirement accounts are great. If your employer has it and you can participate, do it. But it's easier said than done. But you're right. The balances are smaller. Black Americans are less likely to have them. You're absolutely right. 
What's the fix? So I say part of the problem is black Americans are not paid what their white peers are paid. So part of my fix is to give employers a three to five year period to get it together, (laughs) whereby they do audits of themselves and they determine that where they're black workers with equal qualifications, if they are not paid the way their white peers are, they have to fix it. If they don't fix it, and this data has to be made public, if they don't fix it, they should not be able to get a tax break for wage deduction. Interesting. Should we be putting pressure on, did they change who runs the IRS? Is that like a, does that change every 10 years, 20 years, every four years? Is that like, should we be, should we be lobbying that person to be a better advocate? Is it like, is it the secretary of the treasury? It's you the know, secretary I know of the treasury. It's the secretary of the treasury. Because okay. the IRS is okay. under the secretary of the treasury. And how do you feel about this secretary of the treasury? I'm concerned that not only the secretary of the treasury, but the assistant secretary for tax policy, who's on this data working group, has zero scholarly record of dealing with race and tax. In fact, this assistant secretary for tax policy writes about inheritance and wealth and doesn't deal with race. So I'm concerned that the president's rhetoric won't necessarily be followed through. So where should the pressure come? It should come, I think, to the White House. Anytime you hear anyone in the administration, whether it's the White House or the Treasury, talking about tax policy, the follow-up question has to do, what's the racial impact of that proposal? And how is the Obama administration on this? Oh, nobody. You ask which president did this happen under? All of them. Now, here's (laughs) one thing that the Obama administration did. They... So the, so the Civil Rights Act required all government, Civil Rights Act of uh, 64, required all government agencies to put forth regulations dealing with disparate impact, right? Title VI says the federal government is not allowed to discriminate on the basis of race. Treasury had never done this. But under the Obama administration, they finally issued regulations from the Civil Rights Act, okay? Wow. In fact, when we think about this, who signed the racial equity order? President Joe Biden, not President Obama, right? Every time President Obama talked about race, he got clobbered. I mean, they clobbered him over a tan suit, right? So perhaps... Joe Biden was the, you know, first person, I'd say, post-summer of 2020. So I think the summer of 2020 was a game changer. And I think it helped people, let me be clear, white people, think about systemic racism in ways they never did before. So I think that's why President Biden's first executive order dealt with racial equity. But it's not enough to have set up this working group to check these boxes. We have to actually do it. Well, we can sit here in front of the pod. Uh, you lit a fire under me already. I'm already texting, calling people. Like, I literally, on this, I'm, like, texting people right now. Like, I'm going to call you as soon as I get off the phone. Good. This is great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.
Pods with the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. And our special contributor, Janetta Elsie. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.